Let's bow our heads. Father, we need you tonight. We need you to speak to us. To speak to us of an age to come. To put within our hearts a hope for another world, for another life. To take us beyond this life. To cause us again tonight to see with the eyes of faith. And so we ask that you would do that. You would take your word. You would stir our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. This is where we began our series, and it's appropriate to end the series here in Acts chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. You recall the context as Paul and Barnabas are in these missionary journeys. This is uh, their first missionary journey. And they've seen many people come to Christ. And they are actually traveling back through the cities where they've done some evangelistic work. And they want to strengthen the souls of the disciples. They want to encourage these new believers to continue in the faith. And really, that's been my goal. And I hope. That's been my goal these past seven, eight weeks, that your soul would be strengthened. You see that in verse 22. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And I, I hope that that's what's been accomplished, that you've been strengthened in your inner person and that you've been encouraged to keep pressing, to keep trusting in God. How did Paul and Barnabas go about strengthening and encouraging? And that's what's interesting is the message that is communicated here. Verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you go about encouraging and strengthening disciples? With a message. A message that is paradoxical. It's an interesting message. The way into God's glorious kingdom leads through many tribulations. It's a bit like saying, well, if you want to go up, you need to go down. You want to go up, go down. Um, And this is what Scripture teaches us. It's It's a paradox. It's a paradox that actually lies at the very heart of the gospel. The cross leads to the crown. Suffering leads to glory. Tribulation leads to the kingdom. Death leads to life. And that's what we want to think about tonight. We're going to be in a different passage tonight. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I hope that as we look at 2 Corinthians, that we see in it a little bit of a commentary on what Paul was talking about. That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So let's turn now to 2 Corinthians. This is where we're going to be tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We were in 2 Corinthians just a few weeks ago in chapter 1, and now we're just a few chapters further in to the book. And I'm going to read verses 16, chapter 4, verse 16, all the way through to 5, verse 5. There is a chapter division there, but really this is all one unit, and it flows together. I want you to notice as we read all the contrasts that Paul makes. A contrast between an outer person and an inner person. Between affliction and glory. Between momentary 
uh, versus eternal or light versus weighty. Uh, things that are seen, things that are not seen. A tent, earthly body versus a heavenly body. Earthly tent versus a heavenly house. These contrasts that are portrayed for us in these verses. So watch for those as we read. Verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So we begin in verse 16. You see there in your notes, main idea, we do not lose heart. Paul's saying, therefore, therefore we do not lose heart. And therefore, takes us back to what he's been saying beforehand. Therefore, because of all that I've been saying, you notice that we're kind of dropping in the middle of a passage. Kind of dropping in. And because of what I've been saying, we don't lose heart. Now, to lose heart is to lose motivation for living the Christian life. To lose heart is to become discouraged. And Paul says we don't lose heart. Paul's drawing a conclusion here. And the conclusion, the summary of that conclusion, that the summary of what he's been talking about that leads him to this conclusion is right here that follows. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And I believe that's a summary of what he's been trying to say and why he draws this conclusion that we don't lose heart. So you see it there in your notes, summary. And to understand... What he's talking about as we drop in here, I think it's helpful for us to get a little bit of context. Historical context. Why is Paul even writing what he's writing? Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the historical context. We, we, we looked at the historical context of these letters that were going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. The troubles that the Corinthians were having and, and Paul's concern for them. But I'm going to take this a little bit of a different approach tonight uh, uh, and set up a... Same, same context, but tell you a little bit more about the trouble. You see, the church in Corinth had many problems. But one of the problems is that there were a group of individuals in the church in Corinth who were seeking to discredit Paul and undermine his authority and influence in the church. And these people seem to have been flashy people, winsome people. They projected authority. They projected power. 
They were the kind of people you would just naturally look up to and want to follow. And it appears that one of the ways they sought to discredit Paul was by pointing to Paul himself. Like, look at the guy. Look at who you are following. Look at how his ministry is attended with weakness. Look how much he's suffering. You don't want to follow that loser, do you? That was kind of the way they were speaking. His ministry is not powerful. It's not glorious. Look, he's always sick. (laughs) He's always got problems. He's weak. He's always being persecuted. Never has any money. he's, He's always in trouble. Look at that guy. You want to follow him? What a joke. He's not very impressive. Part of what Paul is doing right here at the beginning of Corinthians is responding to that line of thinking. He wants to remove the suspicion and doubts in the minds of the Corinthians by causing them to look and be impressed, not by surface realities, not by the outward, not by the visible, but by the invisible, by the inward, by the eternal. He wants them to see with the eyes of faith. And he's trying to help them. If you're reading chapters 3 and 4 and 5, he's he's trying to help these people see with new eyes, with the eyes of faith. Paul responds by acknowledging, sure enough, my gospel ministry may not seem very impressive or glorious on the outside, but it does possess great glory. Greater glory than even Moses had when he came down from the mount with his face shining. It's just a glory that's hidden. It's hidden beneath the surface. It's like, the, it's like a treasure that's, that's hidden in a pot. It's that kind of a glory. Behind the unimpressive exterior, behind the weakness, behind the suffering, behind the outer man that's decaying, God is working in powerful and glorious ways. He's shining into hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is an inward renewal being accomplished day after day after day. And this is what Paul has been talking about. Perhaps you've come here tonight and you feel pretty insignificant. Pretty weak. Like, how would God use me? Well, I want to encourage you. I want you to take heart. Not lose heart, but take heart. You're the very one God can use. You're the very one God can use your insignificance, your weakness, your suffering is an asset to God, not a liability. It's an asset to God. God is in the business of using the weak to display his power. He's in the business of using foolishness to showcase his wisdom. And he uses suffering to produce glory. Suffering to produce glory. And this is why we don't lose heart in our suffering. And this is where our passage begins. Paul has been giving reasons why we don't lose heart. And now he wants to pile reason upon reason. He wants to give us many reasons why we must not lose heart as we work through afflictions. And so he's going to give us two more reasons. You see those in your notes. Reason one and reason two. Why do God's people not lose heart in the midst of suffering, affliction, persecution? Why? Why do God's people experience an inner renewal while their outward person is perishing? Why? Because God is doing something in suffering. God has a purpose in suffering. 
See, purposeless suffering leads to despair. But purposeful suffering, meaningful suffering, leads to courage, renewal, and hope. And Paul wants to give these believers hope. He gives them the first reason. Here's reason number one. Why do we not lose heart? Verse 17, for. That little word for is important, isn't it? Because it's communicating a reason, a reason why we should not lose heart for our sufferings, our trials are producing something. They're bringing something about. They're causing something glorious beyond our imagination. Let's pause here for a minute and let's think a little bit about a theology, a biblical theology of suffering and glory. Paul is making the claim that suffering produces glory, but when you begin to think about glory, it's kind of an intangible. It's, it's hard to define. What does he mean by glory? It's a nebulous word. Well, glory has this idea of expressing outward some reality. It, it, it has the idea of displaying something. And... If you think about it, God created human beings not just to glorify God, but to be the glory of God. Is that heretical? Not just to glorify God, but to be the glory of God. To display God. To be His representatives on this earth. To showcase what God is like. That's, that's something. When God created us in His image, He endowed us with glory and honor. He made us so that we would display who He is. But you see, we failed to be the glory of God on this earth. We sinned. We rebelled against Him. We disobeyed Him. And in falling, in in that rebellion, we lost our position of glory. We did. Because when we sinned, we incurred that sin nature. We know that we lost that capacity to display God. But that was not the end of the story. God had a plan to restore human beings to a place where they might once again Not just be to the glory of God, but be the glory of God. Display God. He accomplished that plan by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to become a human being. And as a human being, to regain the glory and the honor that the human race had forfeited. Well, you might ask the question, how did Jesus do that? Well, he did it by conquering sin and death. The very thing that took away that glory. And how did he conquer sin and death? By the suffering of death. By laying his life down. And because, that's what the book of Hebrews tells us, because of the suffering of death, he was then crowned with glory and honor. He tasted death and he rose again. And he was crowned with glory and honor. You see, God in his sovereign purposes has chosen to tie two things together, suffering and glory. If you read the New Testament, you'll see it over and over and over again. 
Suffering and glory are tied together. And he has determined that suffering be the path that leads to glory. Not just the path for Jesus to go to glory, to be led to glory, but our path as well if we follow his path. In fact, those two concepts are so intertwined that there is no glory without suffering. There's no glory without suffering. We read that in Romans 8. Romans 8 says we're children of God. And if we're children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then it says this, if indeed we suffer with him, so that purpose, so that we may also be glorified with him. And the implication is there's no glorification with Jesus if there is not suffering with Jesus. Suffering leads to glory. That's all very, very important because we have to understand that the only way we, you and I, recover our lost glory, our ability to display God and represent God on this earth is through Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, in union with Jesus, as we experience both suffering with him and glorification with him. Now, if we're on the right track here, thinking through this concept of glory, it means that the recovery of this lost glory that we're talking about means at least two very specific and concrete experiences. Because I want to connect this word glory in your mind to something very specific, something concrete. And the first thing that glory is talking about here is what we call sanctification. Sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is becoming like Jesus in character. Becoming like Jesus, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you say, how do you know that's what Paul is talking about? Just go back a chapter, chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. What do we read? But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of the Lord, right? And then he says this, from what? Glory to glory. Just as from the Lord the Spirit. So as we gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ, we are transformed into his image. From one degree of glory to another degree of glory. Suffering produces glory. It produces sanctification glory. Likeness to Jesus Christ in character. But glory, you see, is not less than that, but it is more than that. It's not just becoming like Jesus in character, in our inner person, but there's another dimension to glory. Glory also can refer to our receiving new resurrected and glorified physical bodies. Not just an inner transformation, but an outward transformation, an external transformation. And it's very clear that Paul has this in mind because as you turn to chapter 5, that's the very thing that's on his mind. In other words, glory serves as a bit of a shorthand for God's, to speak of God's ultimate purpose for human beings. Ultimate salvation, being made like Jesus, both in soul and in body. Being like Christ. 
sharing, participating in Christ's glory and kingdom. So with that understanding, let's go back to our passage, chapter 4, verse 17, and look at the Look at what Paul says here. In some sense, it's, it's somewhat stupendous. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. How is this glory produced? Through suffering. Through affliction. Now, I want to be very clear. Suffering does not earn us glory. Just be very clear. That's not what Paul's saying. Suffering is not meritorious in itself. Glory is not the reward for suffering. But suffering produces glory. Affliction generates Glory, it brings about glory. The word produce here has the idea of working something out by means of a process. Working something out by means of a process. It's the exact same word you have in Romans chapter 5 where he says that tribulation produces what? Say it again. Perseverance, right? And perseverance what? Character. And character produces hope. There is something that is being produced. Just as The irritant in the oyster is what causes the formation of the pearl. Just as the the dying of the leaves produces the glory of the fall colors. So suffering produces glory. Suffering, justice, persecution, affliction, disease, all, all the suffering you can think of does not overturn the purposes of God. They don't undermine his grand design, but they are rather the very means, the very instruments God has chosen to accomplish his purposes, to bring about his goal, to bring about the goal of restoring his people to glory, the sanctification and glorification of his people. The two things I'm thinking about, sanctification and glorification of his people, and suffering is the instrument God uses to produce present sanctification glory and future resurrection glory. Present sanctification glory and future resurrection glory. And that tells us that there is not an ounce of suffering that will be wasted. There is not an iota of pain that is meaningless. Not for the believer. If you could see the glory it was producing, and Paul says it's beyond all comprehension, beyond all comparison, you would view your pain and suffering as nothing, as small, as insignificant. Look at the contrast of words, momentary, light. Verse 17, compared to eternal, Wait. See, in comparison with the eternality of that glory, it just goes on and on and on and on. And the heaviness, the, the weight of that glory, you could, you could speak of it as the fullness or completeness or richness of that glory 
our present trials and afflictions, Paul says, are momentary. They're brief. They're passing. And they're light. They're easy to bear. There is nothing. It's interesting because just a few chapters before, Paul had been describing this enormous affliction he had in Asia. And he uses words like, I was burdened excessively beyond strength. I even despaired of life itself. And now a couple of chapters later, he looks at that from the vantage point of eternity and says, it's nothing. Nothing compared to the glory that it was producing. I wonder tonight if you realize that God through your suffering is producing glory for you. That your afflictions are generating glory. But we might ask a question here. Do you presently see that glory? Do you possess that glory in all of its dimensions? And we'd have to say, no, not completely, right? We don't see it all. We don't see, we don't possess that glory. We don't see it. What do we see? Well, often as we look out, we see problems. We see wars. We see cancer. We see dementia. We see death. We see rejection. We see calamity. We see what seem to be meaningless accidents and tragic events. As we look at the scene, we see a lot of just bad things, difficult things. And that's why Paul says, we need to look at the things that are not seen. Not the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. And I would add, not seen yet. Because they will be seen one day. So I asked the question, when does suffering produce glory? You see there in your notes, when does suffering produce glory? Well, Paul says here in verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. See, does suffering just produce glory automatically, mechanically? No. Suffering doesn't just produce glory mechanically. Suffering works glory as we do something. Actually, as we look upon something, as we turn our gaze beyond our suffering and on to eternity. He says, while we look at the things, not at the things which are seen. While we turn our gaze away from this present world and our experience in this world. You realize, if our hope is in this life alone, Paul says we're the most to be pitied. (laughs) I mean, if this world is all there is, live for this world. Try to get as much as you can out of it. But there is a world to come. And Paul says, gaze upon that world. Look at that which is to come, at that which is eternal, at that which is unseen. See, the Christian does that. The Christian looks beyond the seen. The Christian has a hope that goes beyond this life. And if you and I are not to lose heart, if suffering is going to produce glory in our lives, the world to come, not this world, but the world to come, must captivate the eyes of our hearts. It must. I ask you tonight, are are we losing heart? Are we becoming discouraged because of the troubles of this life? 
And I want to say this gently tonight, but perhaps it is an indicator that we're seeking life and hope in this world, maybe just a little too much. That we're looking maybe a little too much at the things which are seen as opposed to the things which are not seen. Taken up a little too much with the problems of this life, the sufferings of this life. And perhaps tonight we need to repent of that. And we need to turn our gaze back upon Jesus and upon all that he has promised for us. Perhaps tonight we need to remind ourselves to desire a better country whose builder and maker is God, a better city, to confess that we're strangers and exiles on this earth. So why do we not lose heart? Reason number one, beginning with that little word forward, verse 17, suffering produces glory. That's his first point. But not only does our suffering produce glory, but as we turn into chapter 5, it creates within, within us a longing for glory. It creates a longing within us for glory. In fact, what Paul does here now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, is he's going to help us to look at the things that are unseen. He just told us, look at the things that are unseen, not seen. And now he's going to help us to do that very thing. Chapter 5, verse 1, for we know, there's another four, right? Here's another reason. Four, for we know something, that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We need to understand Paul's metaphors. He's using the metaphors of a tent, of a house. What is Paul speaking about? Well, he's speaking of two different physical bodies. That's what he's talking about. And he describes this present body, the body you have, the flesh and blood that's on you, <laughs> that you live in. He describes that as our earthly tent. Our earthly tent. You think about it, a tent is a temporary structure. It's not permanent. It's temporary by its very nature. Tents are for pilgrims on a journey. They've not reached their destination. And he says that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, if this thing breaks down, if this thing dies, if it perishes, we have a hope. There's another building. But it's not just a tent. Note how the metaphor changes. We have a building from God. It's something more permanent, isn't it? It's a house not made with hands. It's a dwelling from heaven. And what he, Paul is talking about here is we have a future glorified body waiting for us. You might ask, well, what will these future resurrection bodies be like? Well, the, the simple answer is that it'll be just like Jesus' resurrected body. Just like his. You might, well, give me a little more information. Well, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he describes something of the nature of that glorified body that will be ours. And he describes that body as being imperishable. Imperishable. 
It won't break down. It doesn't deteriorate without any dishonor. In fact, it's going to be full of glory. Same word there again. It won't be characterized by weakness, but by power. And it won't be a natural body, but it will be a spiritual body. And by spiritual, he doesn't mean non-physical, but he means consistent with and able to interact in a spiritual realm. In fact, he refers to it as our heavenly bodies. Heavenly bodies. See, the Greeks, if you go back and you study the Greek philosophers, the Greeks, they believed that the body was the prison house of the self, uh, soul. Your body's bad. That's how they viewed it, Gnostics. Your body's bad. And your hope of salvation is for your soul to be freed from the body. And one day your soul will be delivered from the prison house of your body and you'll be forever free. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not the Christian hope. Our hope is that we might not become naked souls. And he uses that language of nakedness. Look at verse 3. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. He says, my hope is not to be some disembodied spirit floating in some ethereal heaven. No, the Christian hope, the ultimate hope that we have is that we will receive new physical bodies, new transformed physical bodies that are glorious, that are immortal, not subject to weakness, disease, aging, sin, or death. Why do we not lose heart when faced with the troubles in this life? Paul says, because we have a hope that goes beyond this life. And we know that if this physical body is destroyed, that's not the end of the story. We have a building from God. We have a better body that God will give to us. And so Paul says we groan. Look at verse 2. For indeed, in, in this present body, we groan. Why do we groan? We, we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. See it again in verse 4. For indeed, while we're in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. You see, as we live in these broken bodies which are subject to the effects of the fall, with all of its suffering, we groan, Paul says, longing to be clothed with a new body. But note that the groaning there is not so much a groaning over our suffering, but it's rather an expression of longing in the midst of our suffering. In other words, Paul is not talking about complaining here about our suffering. But he's talking about a longing, a groaning that's a longing. A longing for what? A longing to be forever free from the troubles of this world, of this present life. A longing for a new existence, a longing for a new reality, a longing for a new body, a longing for life. We were created to experience life. When we respond to our suffering with faith in God's promises, it creates within us a longing, a longing for heaven, a deep desire to experience new 
resurrection life. One commentator, I'm going to quote, says this, God is working through hardship to pry open our hands and loosen our hearts from our tight grip on the here and the now. One of the things God is using suffering in your life and in my life is to cause us to long for something beyond this life. I continue the quote, he's working to release us from the hope that this present world will ever be the paradise that our hearts long for. God is working to release us from the hope that this present world will ever be the paradise our hearts long for. And so I ask you tonight, do you long for heaven? Do you long for your new resurrection body? Do you long to be free from all the troubles, all the sin, all the effects of this fallen world? Do you long for what God has promised you? If you do, that pleases God. That's faith. That's faith. And faith delights the heart of God. Another commentator says this, suffering is like a sharp knife that cuts one cord after another that holds us to this earth and to its earthly glory. Suffering. Our grasp, our, our, our hold upon this, this earth, this world. And so as we lose loved ones, as we experience the breaking down of our bodies, as we experience the difficult, the suffering of strange relationships as accidents and tragedies occur. God is freeing us from trying to seek life on this earth so that we might long for the, the true life, the eternal life that he alone can give. And that leads us to this conclusion in verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. He who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. See, God is preparing us for a purpose. What's the purpose He's preparing us for? Well, if you follow His logic, Paul is saying that God's purpose is to bring us to a place where what is mortal is swallowed up by life. That's what God is preparing us for. God's preparing us for a place, that, that, that a point in time, that moment in time, where what is mortal is swallowed up by life itself. See, God is absolutely sovereign and exceedingly good. Absolutely sovereign and exceedingly good. And the circumstances he brings into your life and into my life are to prepare us for the moment when we will be glorified. That's incredible. God places suffering into your life with that goal in mind, with your glory in mind. God is working. He's working everything in your life to prepare you for that moment when your regenerated, sanctified, glorified soul 
will be united to a glorified body. That's going to be an amazing moment. When a sanctified, glorified soul in a person is united with a glorified body. And everything is leading up to that moment. That is the crowning experience of God's work of grace in a believer. That, according to Scripture, is ultimate salvation. When that moment takes place. Sometimes I think we have this idea that we just need to grit our teeth and somehow make it through this life. And then God will fix everything when he returns. Or or we think, well, well, when Jesus comes back, you know, everything's going to be new. It's going to be this great reset of our lives. He's going to give us this blank slate. Eternity is not a blank slate. God is at work in this life, shaping and preparing us for the life to come. You realize that? Our life in this world affects the life to come. How we live our lives in this world, it matters to God. How we respond to affliction matters. It matters. What we long for in this life matters. What we look to in life matters. It matters for all eternity. It matters. You realize we need to rehearse this to ourselves. There's a day coming. Be excited. There's a day coming when Jesus Christ is going to step back into history, back into this world. And the dead in Christ will rise to new life. And those who are alive will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And it's going to be a glorious day. The deaf people are going to start to hear. The blind are going to see. The paralyzed are going to walk. Yeah, I'm going to walk again. The weak are going to, made, are going to be made strong. Sin is going to be eradicated. Pain and suffering, no more. All's going to be light. All's going to be joy. All's going to be life. We're going to have new, transformed, physical bodies on a renewed earth. We're going to live on a renewed earth. We're going to be completely free from imperfections. We're going to be free from sin. We're going to display God. We're going to be the glory of God once again. We're going to be strong. We're going to serve God. We're going to live in His presence. We're going to see Jesus. It's going to be fulfilling. It's going to be meaningful. That's our hope. That's the Christian's hope. It's a hope that goes beyond this life. And the suffering of our short lives on this earth cannot be compared. They cannot even begin to compare to the glory that is to come. Brothers and sisters, do you look forward to this eternity? Do you long for these things? Do you realize that the very longing changes us? The very longing purifies us. You might ask, how can I be sure that these things are true? How can I know they, they are so? Paul ends here and he says, he gave us his spirit as a pledge, as a guarantee, as a down 
payment, as proof that we will one day experience all of this. See, if you belong to Jesus, God is at work in you by his spirit tonight. He is. He's at work in you by his spirit. And the activity of God's spirit in you is evidence that he's preparing you for this eternal glory. It's the evidence. I could put it this way. As the spirit of God is working sanctification glory in us, we are assured that we will one day experience resurrection glory. As the spirit works sanctification glory, we know, we are assured in our hearts that we will one day experience glorification, resurrection glory. God has a purpose in our suffering. That's what this whole series has been about. God has a purpose. He has a glorious purpose in our suffering. And one day, when you and I see the glory that our sufferings have produced, I believe we're going to be awestruck, dumbfounded at the wisdom and goodness and greatness of our God. Well, let's bow our heads. Father, we we come tonight to just praise your name. That you have revealed these things to us. That you have chosen, you and your, your kindness, chosen to speak to us of these things, things to come. Grant us your grace to fix our eyes upon the unseen, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Work your purposes in each of our lives. Work within us, I pray. A longing, a longing for eternity, a longing to be with you. And we ask this, Pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen.